Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native Americans are put behind bars at a rate as much as seven times that of non-Native white people. That's one of the revelations in a new report on incarceration. The report is the latest in a string of other reports dating back decades that find disproportionate Native representation in prisons and jails. It also points out the role tribal justice systems play in contributing to the higher numbers and providing viable solutions. We'll find out more right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Navajo Nation has lifted a long-standing COVID-19 mask mandate. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, early in the pandemic, the reservation was one of the most heavily impacted areas in the country. Under the order, masks will no longer be required in public indoor spaces throughout all of the reservation's 110 chapters. It makes face coverings optional except for in schools, nursing homes, and healthcare facilities, and for those who may have COVID or who've been exposed. The mask mandate mandate has been in effect for almost three years, and the Navajo Nation is among the last areas in the country to lift its requirement. Navajo President Boo Nigren says lifting the mandate would help the tribe return to normal business and help boost the economy on the reservation that struggles with unemployment. Former Navajo President Jonathan Nez, who lost re-election to Nigren in November, has questioned the decision to lift the restrictions. He says the relatively low rate of recent infections on the reservation was mostly due to the mask mandate. He's also calling on the administration to be more transparent with COVID data. At one point in 2020, the Navajo Nation had the highest per capita rate of COVID infections in the country. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona. Meanwhile, history was made Monday in the Navajo Nation Council, the tribe's legislative branch, as Crystalline Curley was elected Speaker of the Council. This is the first time a Navajo woman will serve as Speaker. Curley is a former Miss Navajo who advocated for elders, has higher education degrees, and says she understands many of the challenges Navajo people face growing up with no electricity and no running water. After being sworn in, she thanked her fellow delegates. It's an honor to be serving you as your new speaker. And thank you for mentoring me and giving me advice throughout all these years. I know I've known some of you for many years. This is also the first time that there are nine Navajo women serving on the 24-member council. Additionally, Rochelle Montoya made history this month, taking office as the first woman to serve as vice president of the Navajo Nation. California tribal leaders and state lawmakers will gather at the Capitol in Sacramento on Wednesday night to celebrate Native American Assemblymember James Ramos being appointed chair of the Assembly Rules Committee. The recent appointment marks the first time a California Native American will serve as chair of the committee. Ramos became the first California Native American elected to the state legislature in 2018 and was named chair of the Rules Committee last month. He's been a strong advocate for Native American issues, including work to address missing and murdered Indigenous people. Ramos was instrumental in the creation of the Feather Alert, 
a notification tool which was rolled out in January to help law enforcement quickly notify the public about missing Native people. The Rules Committee has primary jurisdiction over matters relating to business of the Assembly. The Rules Chair also serves as chair of the Joint Committee on Projects covering both houses. Ramos held the first meeting as Rules Chair last week. Wednesday's celebration will be live-streamed from the Capitol Rotunda. The Cape Cod Times reports former chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, Cedric Cromwell, has been ordered to pay $250,000 in restitution to the tribe, along with an owner of an architecture firm. This follows bribery convictions last year in connection to the Massachusetts tribe's plan to build a resort casino. According to court records, the two men are responsible for legal expenses incurred by the tribe and were ordered to repay jointly. In May, Cromwell and firm owner David DiQuattro were convicted by a federal jury and were sentenced in November. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. A judicial system that only punishes offenders perpetuates the disproportionate rate of Native Americans behind bars. That is one of the conclusions of a new report on Native incarcerations funded by the MacArthur Foundation. The report highlights statistics that are well known by experts in the field. Native American incarceration is 38% higher than the national average. It also finds youth are more likely to be tried in adult court. The overrepresentation in the correction system perpetuates cycles of offenses that have devastating effects on families and communities. But the report also finds tribes and tribal court systems have a role to play in turning the troubling numbers around. The report's authors say offender diversion programs, tribal social programs, and inmate reentry efforts can all combine to help break the cycle and improve outcomes on a large scale. We're talking about disproportionate incarceration today and highlighting some of the solutions. Join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us from Arvada, Colorado, is Nikki Borchardt-Campbell. She's the executive director of the National American Indian Court Judges Association and an attorney. She's a member of the Paiute Indian Tribe of Utah and Ute Indian Tribe. Nikki, thanks for joining us for having me. Nikki, a new report funded by the MacArthur Foundation documents a serious overrepresentation of Native people behind bars. How does this research compare with what you know? Um, this pretty much aligns with, um, you know, what we have, number one, been seeing on the ground, but also various data coming from the BJS, which is the Bureau of Justice um, Statistics out of the federal government. And also with regard to what 
um, tribes have been reporting back to various national organizations. So it's mm-hmm. not a surprise. Okay. Now, the report also points out that some tribal courts contribute to the problem by putting tribal citizens on trial without proper representation. Is that something that's a major factor in disproportionate Native incarceration? Um, Per that report, that was something that was written in there. And um, we do know that tribal courts and courts in general do contribute to the issues uh, related to over-incarceration and especially that disproportionality rate with regard to, you know, our Indian um, brothers and sisters, our tribal brothers and sisters who are um, in jail right now. So that can be a component. And um, short answer is yes, that can be a component. But a lot of the tribes and the courts that we work with do have um, some defender programs and representation and advocates available for their tribal uh, members. Nikki, what are some of the most significant challenges facing tribal justice systems today? I would probably say first and foremost, you know, there's a a complicated jurisdictional scheme that has been for not necessarily forced, I would say forced on a lot of our communities and especially a lot of our tribal courts. So, you know, they're dealing with complicated jurisdictional issues. Um, they're also dealing with lack of resources and whether that's um, resources to fund their courts or to fund their programs. Um, that is one of the larger issues. Um, and then also, you know, we are coming out of this massive pandemic where we are starting to see a lot of, you know, issues come about. We're starting to see and learn more about um, trauma. We're starting to learn more about substance use disorder. And we're also learning a lot about those underlying issues that are bringing individuals for courts. And so, you know, that's, you know, those are big issues, um, Mm -hmm. especially as, you know, we're talking about, you know, the court as um, the body that is administering, you know, the laws of the tribe. And so, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of this um, in our justice systems, and we're also trying to unravel a lot of this in our justice system. Now, Nikki, you mentioned uh, jurisdictional issues, creating challenges, creating some, some confusion as well amongst different courts and uh, different judicial systems. So, um, you know, this is uh, on, on everybody's mind right now with some of these recent developments uh, in Oklahoma and elsewhere. And um, so what are, what are some, some of the ways that the tribal courts are, are, are working uh, as best they can to address some of these jurisdictional challenges? Or is it something that's just uh, kind of uh, above their scope in some regards? It's Not above their scope, but um, like we said about the resources, those are always challenges. Um, After McGirt came down in 2020, what we did see is a massive spike, especially with the Muscogee Creek Nation and their dockets and the amount of criminal cases that were occurring. And fortunately, you know, they had judges who were very well trained at that point. It was just a lot of work. And so it's really about being able to provide resources where we're seeing dockets for either criminal cases um, arise, um, ensuring that, you know, those judges and those judiciaries are receiving appropriate training as needed. And, of course, it was also overly complicated by the fact that we did have the pandemic 
you know, courts weren't working and functioning the way that they would normally when they administer justice. But, you know, that's at the core of it, is to just ensure that, you know, our um, tribal courts are adequately funded, um, that our judges are adequately trained, and that, you know, we're providing support to those court staff members who are the really, you know, the, the foundation of how our justice system, at least the courts, are being run. So those are our court clerks, ensuring that if those courts need bailiffs and have bailiffs, that those bailiffs are receiving support and the training that they need. So there are a lot of little components with regard to the tribal court that needs the support in order to function properly. And so our courts do have the capacity, and that's you know, not saying that every single one of them have you know, this level of capacity, but that's what we're working on. We're working on continuing to build justice system support for all of those courts so that when difficult cases arise for them, that they're able to, number one, identify the, um, you know, of course, apply the law, that's, you know, threshold, but then also um, if there are services or particular interventions available to those justice system involved individuals that our judges can identify, you know, the appropriate way to administer the law and um, deal with the cases and also do it in a compassionate way, understanding that the people who appear before them are members of their community. Mm -hmm. Now, the report also cited uh, difficulties with collecting accurate data on incarcerated Native Americans. And I'm, I'm curious to know what could be done to get better data and, and how could that data be used? Oh, that's the, that's the big question. And uh, we've been talking about this for years. So along with the, the court's justice systems, even our tribal programs being underfunded. Um, you know, we go and talk to foundations and to the federal government about, you know, you all would love data. We all love data. It tells a story. It tells us the impact that we're making or it shows us issues where that we are having, um, either in the implementation of the program or as we're trying to track our individuals through the justice system. The problem we have is we don't have access to hundreds of thousands of dollars to either begin um, a study, the tech and the access and the resources to collect data and to capture the information necessary. And then number two, we don't have the, um, the additional information and resources money-wise in order to evaluate that data in an effective manner um, so that we can go ahead and track the information so that we can track these numbers. So, of course, first and foremost, resources are always going to be an issue. But then also collaboration. You know, a lot of that study was also mentioning that we were trying to track individuals who are um, Native Americans through state and federal systems as well. And so that really involves communication and collaboration with various governmental entities. And that isn't easy to do in any regard. There are some states that do better than others. Um, you know, the BJS has been doing their best to track the data that's been provided to them. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges related to data capture and analysis. And then not to mention, of course, you know, just our historical tribal mistrust of anybody coming into our communities who's trying to, you know, capture data and information. So okay. um, a lot of well, complications Nikki, related to that. It, it sounds like. And Nikki, um, 
if we could get that accurate and timely data, how could uh, that be used by tribes and, and tribal court systems? Oh, it could be used in a multitude of ways, whether it's really trying to um, look at uh, the populations who are incarcerated, why they're incarcerated, and really looking at that breakdown of issues. They could use that in you know, applications or grants um, for grants to be able to support those individuals. They can use that to ask private entities for funding for their own initiatives. Um, there are so many ways we could use that data. We could use it internally um, to help our own programs. Um, but again, the process um, to get the data and also to get it in a timely manner is, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult. You know, some of the last information that we have on tribal courts was a BJS survey that was done um, in 2014, and we didn't receive the results till 2021. So, you know, just the fact that we don't have access to data and information, even though we're putting forth a lot of good effort to try to get the information. Um, it, it really is slowing down um, some of the progress. But, um, you know, our communities are doing what we can. And even as uh, training and technical assistance providers, we're trying to um, create tools and methods that, you know, our courts and our tribes can use even for their own internal information and for reporting information so that they can show that good things are happening that they are collecting good stories. And so we try to reform data capture and collection as, you know, this is telling the story of your program and your community. And so giving them small ways that aren't expensive in order to um, collect the necessary information to help their programs. The report is titled Over-Incarceration of Native Americans, Roots, Inequalities, and Solutions. We'll be right back. The metal lithium is becoming more and more valuable as a key element in electric batteries, but mining it is environmentally costly. Tribes in Nevada are at odds with the company's plans to expand the country's only lithium mine, which they say would destroy a sacred place. We'll find out about the key points of lithium mines on the next Native America Calling. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about incarceration and some solutions by tribal justice systems that show promise. How are tribal justice systems helping or failing those in your Native community? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is joining us from Rapid City, South Dakota, Johanna Farmer. She's the program attorney at the National American Indian Court Judges Association, and she's an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Johanna, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Johanna, what are your main takeaways from this new report on over-incarceration of Native Americans? 
Yeah, I think I agree with Nikki that it's stuff that we've already seen on the ground when you're working, that there just is an over-incarceration of Native Americans, and that the thing that I really took away from this article is that, you know, tribes are the best situated to be able to deal with the situations that are taking place with our tribal members. And and why is it exactly? What makes tribes so uniquely qualified to handle some of these pressing criminal justice issues? One is we can see what's happening with our tribal members. We're there working with them. You know, we're living in the community with them. We see what's going on in our own communities. And sometimes when decisions are being made far away from our own communities, they don't aren't culturally grounded in the things that make our communities unique. So when tribes can have culturally connected um, services provided to individuals, it can even prevent that involvement in the justice system or that incarceration in the first place. Okay. Um, Johanna, I mean, what needs to happen so so tribal courts aren't uh, the place to deal with, with larger issues facing tribal offenders? And seems like some in some ways some of these courts are overwhelmed. Yeah, I think one of the things is having a community approach. So I before I came to Niger, I was working with the Pascoyaki tribe and I was working on what was called the Tawahi initiative. And part of that initiative was looking at the coordination and collaboration across all tribal departments and programs and even outside partners to be able to address some of the issues that are facing our tribal members. You know, it's not just the court that's able to handle what's going on and its involvement of the family, making family-centered decisions. So the Tawai Initiative at Pascoyaki um, did fund the Attendance Achievement Program, which is a truancy diversion program that would work with families to identify what's going on within the family and then provide those services specifically to the family to address those core root issues that are, you know, making it so a child isn't going to school. And those are the things that, you know, help. So having the community come together to support individual families and having the family come together to support each other. Let's go to the phones. We have Susan listening on station KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. Susan, hello. Hey, good morning. I um I'm retired, but one of the longest jobs I had, and and really rewarding in its way, was uh, teaching and coordinating education recovery programs in the adult facility out here in Bethel, and we hub 57 villages. And I think what also needs to be addressed is the recidivism. Not only is the high incarceration rate there when you look at the j- in a population of the jail, but the recidivism rate. And often, you know, I'd learn just as much from the inmates there than, than I had to offer them. And one of the questions I often ask them is the very first time, very first time you got in trouble with the law, what was going on? Where were you coming from? What were people approaching you with? And basically, sometimes that just starts the revolving door. Because initially, it's you know state trooper, state court, state attorney, and they go to the court and they see a sheet of paper that says state of Alaska versus you. So initially, they're not even facing their peers the people they hurt or offended, the people that love and care for them. So I'm all for tribal courts. And then they get the, somebody, attorney will tell them, well, let's just plea bargain it down. Okay, that just sets the stage for the revolving door, the jail him, trail him, nail him system. So um, they go back home, 
the temptations, the issues, and all that have not been addressed. And and there you go again. And and then I see them back again in in, in the facility. And I really think there's a number of things. The tribal courts are so important. Um, Bethel, this region has historically started the whole system of village-based health aides, village-based dental therapists, village-based village safety police officers. And I think another trend should be some kind of a village-based probation support service um, based out in, in the in the various villages okay. to really work with people because sometimes they don't understand and they don't have the support and they just don't know their options and they don't realize their talent and skills that they do have that can really get get them in in a good situation again. All right, I'm going to let you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. That was a a really really good call. Great insights. And uh Johanna, I'd like you to respond. I know Alaska is a little bit different than some other parts of of, of Indian country, but uh, our caller, Susan, says, jail them, trail them, and nail them. Uh, sadly, that sounds like in, in many cases that's kind of the way things work. What's your response to that, Johanna? Yeah, I think we do see really high rates of recidivism, and part of that is we're not really addressing the core issues that are bringing individuals into the justice system. So how do we design programs? And I think Susan had kind of mentioned it, these culturally relevant programming. You know, we see studies out there that say individuals who are connected to culture are one, have all of these protective factors around them, but it keeps them out of the justice system when they're connected to their culture. So how do we make sure tribal members are more connected to culture? And one of the things is providing services and programming that are culturally grounded and culturally relevant in each one of the tribal communities. We've got another caller listening who's called in uh, JR up in Alaska as well. JR, you're on Native America Calling. Good morning. Um, These tribal courts are too lenient on offenders they're not like the state laws they tend to be like slapped on the wrist compared to the state laws these tribal courts need to be more stern they even talk about it in the community yeah the tribal courts they'll just slap me on the wrist and Mm. compared to state laws they'll be more stern they're too weak. These tribal courts around Alaska, they're weak. They they don't know how to be stern because mostly it's all about family in a little community. They say, yeah, he's my uncle or he's my brother, he's my whatnot. And they don't want to do so stern punishment on them just because they're family. Uh-huh. And um, their leniency makes it more hard for them to do stern actions later on when they know people know that these are weak in Alaska if you really come to Alaska and see tribal courts they're weak they're lenient on offenders compared to the state ones they're really stern I'm sorry, Jair, but I really appreciate this call, um, very much so, and really appreciate your perspective. And let's go ahead and let uh, one of our guests, I'm going to go ahead and let Nikki respond to this. And, and Nikki, Jr. cites uh, 
tribal courts being perhaps too lenient, um, citing perhaps uh, issues of, of nepotism. And I, I'm curious, Nikki, um, with regarding, I think really at the heart of this is inconsistency, perhaps, uh, with how tribal courts uh, deal with offenders. What's your response to that? Yes, and um, the the caller was more specifically also talking about, you know, a lot of what's going on in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our Alaska um, Native brothers and sisters and the villages have an entirely different set of issues related to, you know, justice, number one, um, receiving assistance um, um, in a lot of the more extremely rural areas that are oftentimes cut off. Um, we understand that. We know right, that right. most villages I'm sorry. need I'm sorry. to be able to get. I'm sorry, Nikki. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think we all understand it. It's, it's a very different yeah. situation in Alaska. But, I, I mean, could this apply, the, the caller's comments regarding tribal courts in some to cases court. not being lenient yeah. enough? Could that apply throughout Indian country outside of Alaska as well, though? I think that's really the, the larger in, issue. In theory, it can, yes. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of what our tribal courts are really trying to understand. Number one, how do you hold people accountable? Um, and how do you really understand and discern, you know, when incarceration is the appropriate response for um, whatever infraction? So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, a nonviolent um, criminal infraction, you know, that's really where we can look at, you know, alternate um, interventions right, as opposed to incarceration. Um, If we're looking at a violent action, yes, of course, there needs to be accountability, and oftentimes that's where you will see incarceration happen. This report was also detailing that incarceration was happening across the board and over incarceration. So in theory, can a court be too lenient? Um, Yes, but that's also, you know, a lot of opinion-based. You know, our courts definitely have, you know, sentencing guidelines. They have procedure that really tell them how they can and can't, you know, handle a lot of, you know, those types of cases, various types of cases that are coming before the courts. Um, You know, if we're really talking about going from an adversarial and punitive system to address over-incarceration, we do really have to start looking and framing it and having that paradigm shift into a more restorative process and even as Johanna mentioned, make it more culturally connected. So we're starting to look at things rather than, you know, what was the law, who broke it, and how do we punish them to who was harmed, how does he, what do they need, and whose obligation is it to meet the need of the harm into even an indigenous space where we're recognizing that everybody's connected and taking, you know, an uncle away from a family for a nonviolent offense you know, that uncle can no longer provide, you know, the resources or helping take care of elders or helping take care of children or even that financial piece of helping take care of the family. Mm -hmm. So it's really about trying to find that balance. And it's all a case-by-case fact-intensive analysis. And that's not necessarily an easy job. Joanna, uh, Johanna, Johanna, excuse me, Johanna, I want to bring you back into the conversation now. And um, another really interesting takeaway I saw in the report was that over the past 20 years, we've seen a nearly 25% increase in the number of jails in Indian country. And the report states this has led to to more people charged with petty crimes, being incarcerated, and for longer periods of time. And, And what I thought was really fascinating about that is I know for 
for a fact that, that there's a lot of um, tribal jails can be a pretty solid source of revenue for some tribes. And there are some tribal jails that will house inmates from other tribal facilities, as well as neighboring municipalities and counties. And I'm, I'm just wondering, in any way, could there be a financial incentive for tribal courts to incarcerate more people? I think in some senses, you know, if you're speaking about those individual tribes that own tribal jails where they're housing other individuals, but usually for most tribes, they're sending their individuals out to federally funded tribal jails. So Pascuayaki is a perfect example. It was, you know, they have a jail there, but they don't house those that have long-term sentences there at the jail. So a jail isn't making any money for them. You know, the tribe has to pay for the transport out to the facility. They have to even, you know, pay for the individuals being out there. I know we were just talking about one of the tribes paying about $18,000 a year to incarcerate someone. And where is that money going to come from, from the tribal budget? So that there may be those individual tribes where there might be a financial incentive. But for the most part, we're not seeing that incarceration is a financial incentive for tribes. Okay. And Johanna, how do you see tribes tackling these issues that exist in, in tribal justice systems? I, I think one is what we've been talking about is those culturally grounded and connected services. How are all of the programs that are on the ground in the tribe working together? I think it's the funding, being able to fund the programs that are successful. And then I think it's also being able to have these multi-jurisdictional approaches to addressing the issues. Because of the jurisdictional challenges that tribes face, there are times where we need to have that ability to approach a a problem from a multi-jurisdictional approach. There are joint jurisdictional courts that are taking place. I think that there's an example even in the report about the Kanaitse Indian tribe in Alaska that has a joint jurisdictional court with the Alaska State Court. So you're having a tribal court judge and a state court judge working together to address an issue with people that are in their community. So I think that's another way we can go about addressing these issues that we're seeing. Well, thank you for those insights, Johanna, and um, let's learn a little bit more about possible solutions. Joining us from Eureka, California now is Amber Miller. She's the reentry staff attorney for the Yurok Tribal Court. Amber, welcome. Hi, Kui. Hello. Thank you for having me. Amber, the Yurok court system works to steer some offenders away from incarceration. Can you share an example uh, that the tribe has had success with? Um, yeah, we recently um, established and are in the process of um, of reaching a formal memorandum of understanding uh, for a tribal diversion program in Humboldt County, which is one of the counties our service area lands in, and um, where essentially we are able to rely on our on statutory diversion for court-initiated diversion and then informal diversion by prosecutors to steer people into our wellness court. And our wellness court is case management-based. Um, case plans are designed to encourage and support participants to be responsible in community and family and for our community to be responsible to them. And includes assisting with basic needs, cultural engagement. Um, you know, almost all of the people coming into our programs are suffering from addiction or co-occurring disorders. 
So um, much of our services are, are based around treatment. Um, uh, you know, and the diversion agreement has just really allowed us to streamline these cases. While wellness courts are, are generally um, developed as a diversion from, uh, you know, uh, child welfare cases and criminal cases, this allows us to really set up those procedures and, and increase access for our tribal members. So those are the programs we've been focusing on, and we're hoping to expand that into other counties and to allow other tribes to use it as a template to begin their own as well. We're going to have to take a, a short break here, but we're going to learn more about this um, wellness court there. That's uh, a relatively new initiative through the Yurok Tribal Court, as well as some other possible solutions for these higher incarceration rates that are facing Native Americans. Anybody with a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You've got it tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Plenty of time to join this conversation about rising incarceration rates among Native Americans and how tribal justice systems have a role in solving the high rates of incarceration for Native Americans. We're at 1-800-996-2848. How do you see tribal justice systems working to help those in your community? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go back to the phones. In fact, let's go back to Bethel, Alaska, where we have M listening on station KYUK. M, you're on the air. Hello. So I think it is entirely way too soon to be giving such intense power to tribal courts in Alaska due to the fact that there is so much culture shock from becoming westernized. We're so remote in Alaska that a majority of our issues are handled with outside or third-party help. And it may be quite premature to give full and entire powers to the tribes due to the lack of know-how or assistance in setting up a court system. Em, appreciate that call, and uh, I know Nikki spoke to that earlier. Uh, it's quite a bit different there in Alaska, and and M cites uh, perhaps the inexperience of some tribal communities in in developing robust uh, tribal justice systems. So, uh, M, your call is noted, and perhaps uh, further along in this discussion, we can revisit that topic again. But let me go ahead and, and pivot back to Amber now, our, our guest. And Amber, I'm just curious. I mean, we, we have heard some criticism today uh, regarding tribal courts. And uh, do you face that as well there at Yurok? Um, You know, there are always politics, I think, in smaller communities. Um, but overall, I mean, we have developed some um, pretty elaborate policies and procedures um, to to try to um, ensure fairness and equal application of opportunities. Um, you know, unfortunately, we are grant-driven, you know, and so it really depends on what we have available at any given time, what types of resources we can provide. But, um, 
you know, um, overall, I, I don't think that's a, been a huge problem for us. Mm-hmm. Well, Amber, earlier uh, we heard Nikki talk about the importance uh, and the need for having accurate data. And I'm just curious to know, I mean, earlier you spoke uh, of the wellness court there and just some of these other programs that you folks have there at UROC. And I mean, how do you measure successes over time? And Because I, I know that's always the question, right? Are, are these programs making a difference? Are they having a real impact? And, and how do you folks measure that? So we have a pretty... Um... Uh, we have a data system, data tracking system called Right Track that um, our court director has um, modified to measure um, all of the Bureau of Justice Assistance reporting requirements, um, which are, you know, one measure of success for sure. Within those, our, you know, we are, we just received a grant for um, planning and capacity building um, and testing strategies for reentry from the BJA as well. So we're hoping to adapt those systems to. Um, create better measurements, um, you know, including when someone is, is healthy and connected with their family, those relationships have improved, when someone is employed, when someone is actually in stable housing, you know, the, um, the, the measures beyond recidivism that are really relevant to someone's success in their life. Um, so working on expanding that data infrastructure is, is part of our, um, is one of our goals right now. Um, but, you know, measuring success within the programs is, is um, uh, it's, it's, step, it's, part, it's part of the deal. <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely. Well, Amber, what are the bulk of offenses that, that the Euroc courts deal with? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Just what, what are most of the offenses, the bulk of them? What, what type of offenses are they? So um, originally, the tribal court was dealing with um, almost all nonviolent offenses in the wellness court. Uh, we have, re- in the recent years, increased capacity um, with different types of grants. Um, you know, the drug court funding grants um, are limited to um, exclude "quote unquote" violent offenders, um, but we've recently received some other grants to be able to expand diversion and. Um, uh, have have greater uh, flexibility there. So we have, um, you know, there are a lot, we have um, the capacity to handle people with violent charges. Um, and we actually have a lot of success with those folks. Um, you know, something that uh, data that they're, they've collected of, around drug courts in general have really shown that that, um, that high level of services and supervision can be really effective and actually more effective for people who are quote unquote high risk. Um, you know, particularly for, you know, Indian country when that when that supervision and services is based in their own community and culture. Um, so, you know, we face a, deal with a lot of drug charges, um, domestic violence. We also have a batter's intervention program within the tribal court mm-hmm. um, for people who are actually convicted and ordered to participate. Um Okay. Amber, thank you uh, for sharing uh, all these insights today. And let's go ahead and bring in our next guest on the show now. Joining us from Covallo, California is Nicole Whipple. She's the Justice Fellow at the Education Trust. She's also a member of the Round Valley Indian Tribe. Nicole, welcome. Hey, Tamani Sintama and heyo, heyo. My name is Nicole Whipple and I thank you for allowing me to be here. Nicole, thank you for that introduction. And I want to ask you, what are your initial thoughts regarding incarceration rates for Native people? 
Initially, my thoughts on incarceration of Native people, you know, I think about the overall um, amount of incarceration um, in America and the height of it. Um, you know, I really think that I understand um, what, so in my, in my studies, you know, we have, we learn about criminal justice studies. We have learned that, you know, we look at the height of incarceration um, overall um, as being, you know, a response to the Reagan administration and the three strikes and um, laws. And that's why, you know, the U.S. is, you know, one of the number one and, you know, one of the highest nations nationwide to have our people, our citizens incarcerated in jails. And that's a problem in itself. The other thing that bothers me or that comes to mind when I think about incarceration, particularly of Native American people, is that um, the romanticize, the romanticizing of the idea of colonization that leaves out the fact that Native American people were um, incarcerated and take their culture taken away from the very beginning. You know, we learn and about the Constitution. We don't learn that, you know, a number of the um, laws and crimes that were created um, revolved around dealing with the Indian problem or, you know, how to assimilate our people um, to take their culture away and force them into boarding schools, to force them onto reservations, which were, you know, um, basically war camps to keep them out of the way for um, these, for colonizers to come in. And so those, you know, we have been struggling and dealing with incarceration by the government all of our lives since, mm -hmm. you know, contact. And so that's, you know, where I am with <laughs> this um, okay. incarceration to begin okay. with. Well, it's interesting that you uh, you refer to some of these historical challenges because this new report uh, gives a pretty extensive history of some of these issues that have impacted uh, our Native people and how they contribute to these issues that we see today with regarding or excuse me, with regard to incarceration. And and I want to ask you, Nicole, more uh, about the role of education and, and how it how it um, how it's reflected the role of education in these overall incarceration statistics, excuse me, statistics for Native people? So if you look at the statistics on education, you will see that our Native people are all, you know, we, we are very high in these levels of incarceration. And then our numbers, you know, are very, very minimal um, in the number of people that are, that are educated. And I think that, um, again, talking about the history is that, you know, the education system and the incarceration system are both in in Indian country are equally the same because again we have you know we look at the idea of you know those are government institutes that tribal people don't trust or understand that you know it's hard for us to gather that trust to say okay we want to go and be educated by these people that took everything for us or you know have been continuing to again romanticize these ideas of colonization without being up front talking about all of these um, um, acts of crime and genocide that have been put, up, um, 
forward with us that created their the constitution um and so that's uh-huh. okay. Okay, yeah i just want to i mean so what is the role then uh of education and specifically how can it help people that are already incarcerated folks that may be already in prison so working with ed trust is really you know we are really did diligently trying to provide education to low pe- low income people um, to really change that um, the movement of you know caging people for doing wrongs you know I think everybody on the phone has talked about you know how it's um, you know looking at a different way to to um, for people to um, stand for their, you know, to be incarcerated and, you know, admit to their crimes. You know, we don't, I think it's important that if we're going to, in that teaching and that modeling, we have to provide opportunity. And so when we do that, you know, if we have the time, you know, whether it be an incarceration, whether it be through wellness court, then we need to provide skills if we expect to see true behavior changes. And so that's where, you know, um, education trust and um, all of our programming, you know, we see the need to um, provide these skills while our, our people are incarcerated so that when they come out, they have um, a chance at reentry because there are so many barriers already. You know, we can, you know, one of the barriers being we can, we can provide all the education, but then when they get out, there's still all these barriers because they have to mark this box of, oh, I was a crime, you know, I, a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, where we work or what we're looking at as far as policy work is really providing an education, a background, something to uh, look forward to when they uh, re-enter into the community and re-enter, you know, with open arms that, okay, we see that you did wrong and then you went and did something positive and you plan to, you have engage in a positive lifestyle with an education and become part of that working community to help heal and model in breaking those cycles. Nicole, this sounds uh, really promising. And what types of education? I'm just curious to know, you know, the specific topics. Are, are we talking like trade learning trades and skills? Are we talking perhaps in some cases liberal arts opportunities? Um, what are some examples of specific classes or, or educational training that uh, incarcerated Native folks would have access to? So my, uh, so there is a number of many, many different, there are both trades, there are both, um, you know, all in any area you can find um, education. My um, fellowship cohort and, and supervisors in the cohort that I had um, prior to the one that I'm working with, with Ed Trust, they all have degrees, law degrees, and I mean, it's just the, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to be, you may be, <laughs> you know, there's no <laughs> limit. There's absolutely no uh-huh. limit as to um, the education and the skills that can be taught in the jails. Uh, I am in California. We have, you know, um, started realignment where, you know, we our um, prisoners can get credit for doing work, um, whether it be skills or education. And I think that's a great 
Credit. So, uh, so there's incentives then to encourage folks yeah. to to take advantage of some of these educational programs, and um, it it all plays into you know this uh, earlier conversation we had. Uh, one of the callers suggested um, the challenges with recidivism and, and what we can do to reduce that. And um, Nicole, do we have any research? Do you have any research that shows um, some of these efforts that you folks are involved in uh, are reducing um, folks that are, are reoffending? You know, I'm sorry that I don't have um, have data on hand, but um, again, my our cohort is you know national wide, so okay, there All are right. um, few of us out of California, and I think you know going back to that com the conversation about the data and the data collecting is that you know one of the problems that I see with that data collecting is that when we talk about um, I heard a little bit about the um, jurisdictional um, ideas and, you know, I was really thinking about the data um, referring to a trilateral government system is a problem in these data that we're collecting because, um, you know, our tribal, you know, initially there's the federal government, people assume there's just the federal government and then the state and local, but we have a trilateral because we have our tribal governments and each one of them is different so when we're collecting data like I'm saying you know my data is not going to be the same not even from California's perspective but from my tribe specifically to the Yurok you know we have another member who's from Yurok our tribal statistics are going to be completely different and so to try and bundle all of these Native American tribes and populations under one umbrella is I I think the um the biggest problem with the data collection is that, you know, we are, we are typically grant funded. Um, you know, our, our tribes are heavily grant funded and those are based on needs for each different tribe. So then to try and bring that all in together, like we all fit under one tree, it just doesn't fit our needs. Well, folks, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up our conversation for today. But before we do, I'd like to thank our guests, Nikki Borchardt-Campbell, Amber Miller, Nicole Whipple, and Johanna Farmer for what's been a very informative conversation on rising incarceration rates among Native Americans. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about tribes on both sides of a lithium mine expansion in Nevada. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.